welcome to episode 2 of pontificating across the pond so what are we going to be talking about today over there uh because there's been so much said about masood azhar and how this is india's crowning achievement uh, crowning diplomatic achievement we're going to be talking about what this actually means for india and uh, some you had a couple of uh, really interesting web series that you wanted our listeners to catch up on if they haven't already yeah i'm really excited about that piece and uh, oday let's not forget uh, we have to discuss the elections we just have to uh we're just two days away uh, from the results so uh, we'll surely uh, touch upon that so should we get started yes let's get started so in our first session uh, we are going to begin with uh, the story of mohammad masood azhar alwi um being included in the daesh and uh, al qaeda sanctions list by the united nations uh, security council and um, oday i just wanted to set the context for everybody i mean everyone has been following this news uh, we've been following it for many years now uh, but this has finally happened uh, he has been included in the list could you just take us into some of the you know background some of the stuff that very few of us knew and understood uh, about this entire move and just the implications uh, of it for uh, the relationship between india and pakistan uh, with the world yeah sure so so uh, the cynic in me uh, you know i just like to start with a quick history tour of how the pakistani isi has always used these terror groups be it uh, jaish e mohammed let or even the taliban in afghanistan as a tool as a proxy for their foreign policy uh, sure, there's a sure. very interesting anecdote that uh, the pulitzer winning uh, journalist and author steve cole narrated in his book uh, so this is uh, this goes back to 2008 uh and uh, john kerry is hosting uh, both hamid karzai and a faction representing the taliban in brussels where uh, they've almost come to an agreement that uh, you know the us needs to pull out of uh, afghanistan and they are open to all suggestions from pakistan from ta- from the taliban from hamid karzai the afghan president as to what it will take to leave afghanistan and uh, pakistan's army chief then uh, general kayani he shows up to the meeting uh, in brussels in 2008 with a document uh, which is supposed to be from uh, mulla mohammad omar who was the leader of taliban then right. saying that you know what we have come to an agreement on what the future is going to hold for afghanistan taliban were planning to renounce their role in international terrorism they were planning to transition into a normal political movement and they were going to open an office in qatar which would uh, which is essentially their political office and uh, general kayani is of course very confident uh, the entire uh, congregation they uh, pour over the uh, details in this agreement but of course it falls through and uh, nothing much comes of it but when steve cole continues his research for the book he realizes that the day general kayani showed up in brussels with that agreement was the very same day that mulla omar died of tuberculosis in a hospital in karachi and uh, the wow. cynic in me says 
that Masood Azhar might be a very similar play. Of course, we needed uh, India needed China's uh, okay, China's go ahead uh, for the UN Security Council to label uh, Masood Azhar as a terrorist. But they would not have done so, A, without consulting with the Pakistani officials. And B, the Pakistani officials themselves would have obviously consulted uh, the ISI, the Directorate S, which is uh, uh, responsible for uh, spawning these terror groups, uh, both in Afghanistan and in Kashmir. And if they said yes, and if this has gone ahead, then the cynic in me thinks that Masood Azhar might be uh, a similar play. The fact that he's either going to be transitioned out of the uh, Kashmir movement or he's most likely simply dead. Uh, so with that, uh, you know, what India and what the sanction letter does not actually refer to uh, also is very interesting, uh, which, of course, has led to these questions of, you know, what India has given up to actually uh, get this through. Uh, it's very important to note that this uh, sanction list, uh, sanction statement does not sanction Masood Azhar for either the uh, 2001 attack on the Indian parliament, the 2008 uh, attack in Mumbai, the 2016 Court incident, or the Pulwama terror attack. And most of all, the statement has nothing to do with uh, all the activities, all the terrorist activities going on in Indian Kashmir. So in a way, it is a severely watered down document. And India seems to have uh, used up a lot of diplomatic capital in actually passing this through. And interestingly, till it was, till China let the technical hold pass, and hence the resolution was uh, accepted. This was a very low-cost uh, strategy for India to keep showing China up as a terror hugger. Uh, the fact that they would not uh, uh, agree to India's demands to label Masood Azhar was a reasonably good bargaining chip that India actually had. But now with this uh, severely watered-down document being passed through, India seems to have lost that and in the bargain have given up a few things like uh, the import of Iranian oil and uh, other defense procurement deals that uh, India is going to sign with the US in the near future. Right, right. So what is what are the implications of a watered-down uh, sanction letter? I mean, I'm just trying to understand the entire furore around this and um, again coming back to a word that was used a lot in our first episode, the amount of chest thumping uh, that has been uh, uh, happening on uh, this entire move. Um, isn't, isn't it uh, still a victory or is it a victory that's come too late? Uh, or in the overall scheme of things, uh, considering some of these things aren't mentioned in the letter, does it uh, dilute this uh, victory? I think it's definitely an Indian victory. There are no two ways to uh, look at it. It's definitely a show of, uh, wouldn't go so far as to call it diplomatic might, but definitely diplomatic finesse. The fact that India managed to get this passed through in such a short time after Pulwama is definitely a positive. But the fact that India had to drop references to the four or five major terror attacks that have happened in India over the past decade, the fact that 
there is absolutely no mention of jammu and kashmir uh one might just wonder what what's the use of having a document which labels him as a terrorist which essentially means there's an there's a capital and arms embargo on him he can't travel outside pakistan i don't think he was doing these things anyway he i don't think he was managing his uh, capital or his assets himself he doesn't have uh, any large uh, assets that he holds in the western countries so it's a it's more of a symbolic victory for india it's uh, it's also rich with symbolism because china has finally sided with india on uh, the issue of terror emanating out of pakistan so it's a win in some columns but i don't think it has gone as far as uh, it would have needed to go to be a tour de force uh all it does for pakistan is just shine a spotlight on them as harboring terrorists but every astute observer will know that you know mullah umar of taliban was found in pakistan osama bin laden was found in pakistan and the chiefs of led and uh, jem they also in pakistan people know all these things it's uh, it's just a matter of whether the western powers are willing to act on it and till the us is invested in afghanistan pakistan will always have an outsized role to play in uh, the geopolitics of south asia right so now when we are talking about uh, the role of china and all of this and obviously it came down to them uh, finally voting um, in favor of uh, this entire move one i mean i would like to not get into some of the history of uh, why china is held back and that i think is an episode by itself uh, and its entire play in this region and um, also with the entire uh, uh, economic initiatives uh, that are in play uh, in the balochistan region uh, of pakistan between china uh, and the government of pakistan but i'd really like to understand uh, the role of the unsc Uh, right it just uh, uh, from the from the outside it just feels uh, like an organization that desperately requires reinvention um, or some rethinking at some level um, is it is it a broken system today that uh, as a country as the world had to wait this long uh, for a resolution of this nature to go through just because one nation uh, was allowed to veto it um is this a sustainable system is this efficient or why is it so broken or does it just feel this way because we have been on the aggrieved side of this entire conversation for so long i think the very pertinent questions and uh, i don't think we'll be able to answer them in the 10 or 15 minutes that we speak on this but definitely i think from an indian perspective uh, the system definitely seems to be broken because for the longest time we were non aligned so i we didn't fall under the umbrella of either the us or the soviet union uh, that finally partly abated during 1971 when russia was willing to defend india against the us seventh fleet but apart from that india it harms india particularly uh, badly because india is not part of any one country's security umbrella 
the way an Australia is, the way a Japan is, or the way the entire uh, NATO is, India is not part of any such uh, security arrangement. So given the fact that we have to fend for ourselves, uh, which is the state that uh, China is in, and the fact that we don't have a permanent uh, seat in the uh, UNSC, I think it's a bit of a lose-lose situation for us because we are perennially trying to uh, pull off this balancing act with uh, Western powers, with uh, Middle Eastern powers, with our Asian counterparts. And at the same time, we're not, uh, we don't have a voice in the uh, permanent five or the permanent five plus one, which is Germany. We just don't have a voice. So from an Indian perspective, I think just expending so much diplomatic capital to get an internationally acknowledged terrorist recognized I think it definitely says that it is a broken system. I'd uh, love to know what you think about it. But for me, it hasn't worked for India. And there is just no route for India to become the sixth permanent member. Because the way India backed China's uh, application to be a part of the uh, permanent uh, member of the United Nations Security Council, there are no such backers for uh, India now. The emerging markets, be it Brazil or uh, South Africa, they would uh, come out and say that India alone does not represent all our voices. Pakistan would never agree to it, which means China will never agree to it, given they have uh, significant uh, economic interests there. So I think India is in a bit of a logjam and we will seriously need to consider whether getting a seat on the uh, United, on the Security Council should be a, should be an avowed diplomatic aim for the country, or we just shift our targets and uh, find other ways of uh, of you know displaying the cloud, the military might that we have, or the diplomatic might that we have. We might just need to find uh, other ways of doing it. True, and I think. Uh efforts in the past of creating organizations of uh, similar structure in South Asia we've seen have failed, uh, either in being able to wield that kind of power or influence. Uh, but but I think, I mean, to, to, you, to your question on my views, um, like a lot of institutions around us, uh, including our favorite uh, football club, Manchester United, <laughs> I think... Uh, a huge part, a huge part of the question is really about uh, reinvention. I mean, this was an organization that was created in uh, soon after the World War in 1945. Uh, these countries, their challenges uh, were fairly relevant from an overall perspective of what the world uh, perceived uh, a threat to be. Uh, today, with uh, the way Japan and Germany, along with India, have grown uh, from a GDP perspective. Uh, there are countries like Brazil and, uh, you know, in Asia, there is Indonesia, which is which are large population centers contributing to the growth of the economy. These countries being ignored in the entire uh, conversation around terrorism and global security, uh, considering a lot of these countries are the ones either at the forefront of fighting it or being affected by it. Um, while there sit countries in the UNSC who are not really... Uh, especially China, you know, which, uh, I mean, I wish no harm upon them, but uh, have not really borne the brunt of a lot of uh, what some of these countries have. Uh, it feels fairly unresponsive as a system. And at the same time, uh, I think we all can agree that it is a system that no one is going to be willing to change, especially the five uh, sitting on the 
security council uh, so i mean just to kind of close out this segment uh, how does this improve in in your mind today i mean are there wheels in motion to kind of uh, change this and for us to not have to wait this long to uh, you know register a known terrorist as a terrorist you know call him what uh, he or the institution is i think what india will have to do in the future is india will continue to have the backing of uh, three of the five members uh, china and russia will uh, vote and decide on an issue by issue basis they're not going to give us a blanket yes or no on any issue which affects us but i think the way uh, germany has gone about building that cloud i think that is a route that india should follow we have to be much closely much more closely integrated with our uh, asian neighbors and our asian allies i think that is something uh, we have ignored for a really long time manmohan singh started his uh, look east policy modi has continued it under the guise of uh, act east but uh, i think that is a partnership that we really need to strengthen and uh, you know there's there's the cynics would say that uh, what germany couldn't achieve in the two world wars they actually just achieved it with 60 years of economic growth and they did that by opening up their borders to their uh, european neighbors they did that by letting capital and labor flow uh, in all directions and uh, they are the unquestionable power in europe now so if india does want to and they for one didn't have uh, a seat on the uh, security council japan never had a seat on the security council like you said so i think just economic growth and better integration with uh, neighbors that has to be the way forward india cannot uh, keep holding out to uh, be given a chance to join it because that's just not going to happen under the current uh, circumstances the only way out is to be much more closely integrated with your neighbors and create a block which then itself acts as an umbrella and a deterrence for any nefarious actors right so i think we can agree at this point in time that uh, it's been a great victory um and uh, i hope that we uh, diplomatically uh, politically and you know from a geopolitical strategy perspective are able to build from here um and uh, while we may not see immediate adjustments in the system uh, but i think the fact that we have been able to exercise some of this diplomatic capital um, should be celebrated and uh, let's see what time has to tell uh, i'm really interested to see if Uh, your theory uh, on what masood azhar is really up to at this point in time uh, plays out <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah. i think we should uh, do a uh, recap on this uh, you know post the elections because i'm sure if bjp comes back into power this uh, entire story will heat up again yeah it uh, will heat so, up because i think it's worked the timing has worked to their advantage uh, i mean there's been one uh, one chest thumping and one security issue after another which have uh, played right through the phases of polling so it would be quite interesting to see that if they do come back to power then where do these issues lie right right so then on that note today let's coolly kind of uh, move into our next segment which uh, might be a little uh, lighter note on a little lighter note uh, from what we were talking now yeah sure uh,
So, Som, let's move on to uh, talking about our next segment. I remember we were very, we were partly excited and we were up in arms uh, about the quality of the nationalist cinema that was coming out uh, in India. But I think this time you have some more, uh, some more heartening news on the content uh, that India is putting out. So I just would let you take the stage and talk about what's caught your fancy uh, in the TV and web series space. Yeah, there. I still uh, remember our conversation on the patriotic films and was uh, was was quite uh, in a ponderous or uh, you know a mode of pontification after we finished our last <laughs> podcast on. Yeah. Uh, there has to be. Uh, you know, better stuff to talk about uh, and uh, in a different, uh, you know, point of view. And um, I think surprisingly around the same time, um, uh, while we were recording the previous podcast, I was watching uh, two shows on two different uh, streaming platforms and uh, none of them were Netflix, uh, where a lot of the uh, uh, great content from the uh, uh, Indian uh, web series space has been coming out in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I mean, obviously, there have been some uh, great shows that have uh, come up on Amazon Prime between uh, uh, Made in Heaven uh, recently from the Zoya Akhtar stable to uh, Mirzapur, which is, again, from the Farhan Akhtar stable. Um, but um, I think there's been some really thoughtful stuff. Uh, there have been two shows that have caught my eye. Uh, and I'm surprised that such few people uh, around me here in India have seen it. Uh, one is uh, uh, La uh which is uh, a show on Amazon Prime. Um, and uh, this is a show that has been uh, created by uh, Biswa Kalyanrath, uh, this uh, comedian uh, that I think all of us have been following for so many uh, years now in India. Um, but um, I think uh, what we first saw of La Kome Ek uh, was uh, season one a couple of years back, uh, which was a story uh, of a boy... Uh, who moves to uh, Vizag on his uh, parents' orders to uh, prepare for uh, uh, IIT uh, and the IIT JEE exam. And I think uh, what the show really talks about is a broken system. And uh, the most surprising part of uh, Lakhomeik uh, season one was uh, the fact that when the end credits would roll up, you would see uh, Biswa Kalyanrath's name. Because uh, the show is something far away from his repertoire of humor. Uh, it's actually, some would say, uh, fairly depressing. Some would say an eye-opener. Uh, but uh, nowhere close to, you know, a night of stand-up by uh, Biswa. Which shows just the, the, the layers that he has. I mean, a lot of this kind of came from personal experience from him. Uh, because uh, he studied for IIT and he is an IIT graduate. Uh, but uh, I think that theme of a broken system, of a boy uh, left in between, uh, you know, uh, an ecosystem that was not uh, made for him, of which was of no interest to him, and how he tries hard to find his place in it, it continues to flounder uh, until what would be a very uh, uh, tragic and yet at the same time a fairly liberating uh, kind of uh, conclusion that the show arrives upon. Uh, the other great thing about season two is it has nothing to do with season one, you know, okay. and uh, I feel that such few writers globally are able to uh, do something like that. I mean, a show that we both loved, uh, Newsroom, 
uh, by Aaron Sorkin at some level managed to do that. You know, while the characters remained the same, uh, the entire story moved into a completely different uh, trajectory in the second season, which is what yeah. happens in Lakho Meek, because season two is about the uh, medical system and about a young doctor in rural India, uh, again caught in between a broken system. Uh, so I think uh, the beauty of the show lies purely um, in the writing, in the amount of research. Season one was very personal because, like I mentioned, uh, this why I'd been through all of it. Uh, season two was uh, was from what I've read. The team had to bring in researchers. They had to have extensive interviews with uh, medical practitioners uh, across the spectrum of the practice in India, right? Because this doesn't just talk about doctors. This talks about the administrative side of uh, uh, running government hospitals and government uh, uh, Medicare programs. And uh, it shows you not just the ugly side of uh, the government health program, uh, which runs across states and districts, uh, but manages to make it gripping, uh, manages to pull you in uh, through the characters, through some of the acting, uh, and uh, stays true to the web series format, where uh, each episode leaves you with a, some sense of a cliffhanger to pull you into the next episode. Um, so it takes all the boxes of a good, well-thought-out, well-written web series. Uh, and at the same time, I think, sets a new benchmark uh, for uh, you know, writers and viewers. Uh, and most importantly, it's a show that doesn't have Radhika Apte. And it's still good. <laughs> uh, so uh, that was a bit of a pleasant shock. So Okay. Uh, so given that you mentioned... Uh both uh, Radhika Apte and Netflix, which for me are synonymous in India because she's just ever-present. It's very yeah. interesting when I actually typed in Lakhume uh, Ek in the search box in Netflix, uh, the first hit result was Selection Day, which, uh, you know, if you'd like, just talk about it. But I think there's a similar premise where, uh, you know, parental pressure and a child trying to rise up to meet those expectations in an extremely competitive and cutthroat industry. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I know I, I mentioned Lako Mate to you without telling you what uh, uh, platform it was on. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and actually, what you mentioned is very interesting. Uh, very quickly, this algorithm of Netflix is a, is a true masterpiece. Uh, because uh, it manages to find you relevant content all the way down towards the storyline uh, for shows that it shows or movies that it doesn't have, you know. And uh, net the the Netflix show Selection Day and Lakhomeik share so much in common, uh, like you mentioned. So it's fascinating how the search engine managed to, I mean, the algorithm managed to pick up that. But Selection Day, I would say, is again, uh, it it feels like an outsider's view of this struggle of this nature of a struggle in India. You know, the show, first of all, being in English and um, characters not sounding very authentic when they speak the language. Um, I've, I've not seen the entire show, I must confess. So it's not fair for me to completely comment on it. But there's a reason I've not seen the entire show because I can not really get past uh, <laughs> yeah. the first few episodes. So again, great effort there. But uh, like, I won't give it a lot of points for authenticity. Um, Whereas on the other hand, the other show that I wanted to uh, quickly kind of touch upon was uh, the show on TVF Play, uh, a forgotten um, uh, 
media house uh, for various reasons that reflected its senior <laughs> leadership, yeah. which I don't want to get into. But uh, I think somebody uh, or an organization that have constantly produced fairly path-breaking content, uh, they have released a show called Kota uh, Factory. And uh, surprisingly, the, there's a huge connect to Lakhomeik uh, season one, because again, it talks about the entire IIT coaching uh, phenomenon. Uh, this time out of its uh, mothership, which is uh, Kota. And, uh, you know, for everyone who doesn't know what Kota uh, stands for as a little town in Rajasthan, then you need to be Googling uh, that right now. But uh, the show, uh, again, talks about uh, three young boys uh, and a few more characters, um, all in between uh, their schooling lives thrown into uh, Kota uh, to get into IIT. But what I love about this show is that this is not the story of how this is a broken system or uh, that these are young boys thrown into a stage of their life unwillingly. Uh, these are boys who want to get into IIT. And I think every time there is a about uh, young boys or girls who don't want to do something or their parents are forcing them to, you know, uh, follow a certain line of education or a career. Uh, I always think about the ones who really want to be there, you know, and uh, this is what the show is about. Uh, one fascinating sh part of it is uh, the show is completely in black and white. Oh, um, that's interesting. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yet to uh, completely understand the significance of it. I'm sure it's dawned upon a lot of people earlier on, but, but for me, uh, I think I'm just really tied into the storytelling right now. Uh, there are there are some great dialogues in the show. I think it's some of the best dialogues I've heard written in a while. Uh, they're simple, uh, but uh, if you watch the show, you'll understand just in terms of how conversations go. Uh, it's primarily based around a boy who desperately wants to get into IIT and will go to any lengths uh, to get in there. Uh, and a lot of those lengths that he takes to get in there uh, are centered around understanding Kota as a city. Uh, understanding the dynamics that make you successful in a city like that, uh, in between all those students who are looking to get in to those few hundred seats, uh, you know. So, uh, again, a brave show. Uh, again, great performances. Um, very tight writing uh, from episode to episode. Uh, a little away from the typical web series of the day, which leaves you with on, on a cliffhanger at the end of every episode. Uh, it feels like a bit of a throwback to a show like Malgudi Days, uh, which we saw growing up. Yeah. Uh, because each episode is really about the characters, about the little incidents, uh, about uh, something that is uh, discussed or thought about at the beginning of an episode. And right at the end of it, you actually understand what it all meant. Uh, I would specially recommend everyone to watch uh, episode three, uh, which just explains what inorganic chemistry is. You know, and for a commerce student who hated <laughs> science, I for a bit wanted to go back to eleven uh, standard and choose science, though I have gotten it. Um, but today, for you, with with your days in engineering, and uh, I think you would you would love the show. I think for you in the UK, you will be able to access it through YouTube, and for everyone else who doesn't want to download the TVF Play app, um, and uh, you should. Uh, get hold of this. So I think uh, good days ahead. I mean, we've obviously been seeing a lot of good content coming out from India. 
but this was really in the big budget space uh netflix has all this money to back you up has great talent at its disposal uh from a showrunner to uh, the lead actors uh, to yeah. technicians uh, these guys don't have access to that i mean even if uh, amazon prime surely does uh, but they're still betting on young writers on very very risky stories um and uh, tvf play are again betting on uh, so many things that are risky i mean a black and white show about uh, boys who want to get into iit and uh, uh on a on a platform that nobody really has uh, yeah i think you're watching on youtube yeah i think it yeah. would have happened only in the black and white days where people where <laughs> yeah, young boys yeah. actually wanted to work to get into iit and it wasn't that parents forcing <laughs> them yeah yeah and and i think i mean don't you feel that i mean considering you were you're from hyderabad and which i think has the highest number of iitians per square uh, <laughs> kilometer uh, for most cities in india um, i mean you you know of so many kids who genuinely wanted to get into iit and would do anything right to, oh yeah absolutely uh, that, i mean yeah. i was uh, i don't think i was ever one of them and instead of graduating out of an iit in four years time uh, i just did it in six years by going there for my masters but uh, <laughs> there were so many people around me who really wanted to get in and they they would willingly give up their uh, limbs to try and get in i don't think i had that kind of fire which uh, makes for an interesting contrast like you said in a city in a state which uh, will take grave offense to you calling kota as the mothership of uh, iitj coaching it would definitely be hyderabad vizag and all of uh, undivided uh, andhra pradesh but it made for a fascinating contrast and uh, i caught that fire only i think when i was preparing for my uh, cat and jmat and all the mba entrance exams i only uh, it's just conjecture what might have happened that i actually had that fire which was all around me great i apologize to the <laughs> iit um but yeah i i hope you get to watch these shows and i hope all our listeners do too definitely i'll give it a try on youtube and definitely the next time in india maybe uh, amazon or hotstar uh, shows i think i'll definitely catch up on them sure thing so i will promise to bring you more shows on this uh, uh, podcast and uh, maybe i can tell you about some of them when we are just generally talking to uh, yeah. but yeah promise to follow some of these shows sure thing so they moving on to what was built as india's most important elections um it's coming to an end one and a half months of uh, the tamasha the excitement uh, all the crazy reporting uh, that we've been seeing uh, how are you feeling are you excited about what's going to happen in the next couple of days are you um, you know waiting with bated breath or do you just really you know give a damn uh, we touched upon this briefly last time that in a way there's no there's no sense of excitement for sure especially the way it was in 2014 where you know large sections of the population especially the youth were so energized they wanted to see change uh i think all of that has definitely dissipated uh for the educated people i think it's uh 
it's more a sense of foreboding uh, whether or not the current government is voted back into power and uh, in a way i view it as uh, you know our generations biggest political challenge the way it was built up to be i think this will be our generations uh, defining election you know people who were born in the late 80s early 90s we've pretty much seen linear economic growth opportunity upon opportunity uh, you know both being given to the country to the individuals to indian companies uh, we haven't really had a hard time uh, you know either politically or uh, militarily we won the kargil war uh, 2001 was the operation parakram was you know essentially nothing it was just a mass build up of troops so you know we've also known peace for a really long time uh, i think this election will shatter a lot of those myths this is when our generation feels cheated this is when our generation uh, discontent within our generation will rise so i don't think there is uh, any excitement uh, in this election so then broadly really disillusionment right and i think we've been talking about this uh, off the podcast also of um, just how this entire election has descended into this uh, sense of uh, chaos right and i i think more in the minds of the voters or at least the ones uh, who feel uh, fairly culpable of getting the country to this point where we had to have these kind of debates uh, but uh, i mean keeping aside uh, what the results are going to be and uh, you know who i mean whether modi is coming back into power or not uh, the fact that uh, we just had the prime minister uh, give what was his first press conference uh, since he became prime minister uh that itself just you know takes away so much of the joy of what it has been to be a citizen all these years of this country right i mean whatever our feelings and whatever our mistakes and uh, of all the governments uh, who have preceded this one there was certain i think there was a certain sense of dignity there was a certain decorum uh, there was a certain understanding of just the nuances of politics and handling the media and and therefore managing your uh, uh you know overall identity and image in front of the public that mattered to to previous prime ministers do you feel all of that is completely out of the window now i mean are we are we pretty much in a trumpes kind of a world uh, in india where nothing matters now anymore it's just the directive of uh, you know one man or mostly two gujarati men uh, <laughs> that is that is going to take the country you know ahead now i i struggle to see i struggle to see it any differently i would love to have a different answer to this i would love to be uh, optimistic and i'm sure we will be a lot more optimistic uh, you know if nothing than just dark optimism in the months to come but as of now it, it just feels like it's two men who've had an election uh, sewn up between themselves and no one could touch them no one could touch this party was uh, just the biggest shock to me uh, maybe you and i and you know the people we know we were existing we existed in a bubble for the last one one and a half years uh, where 
we saw the discontent we saw the really bad numbers on the economy and the jobs uh, and we saw the three or four election defeats uh, last year and maybe that gave us hope uh, but if this government does come back into power with anything close to the numbers that they achieved last time i really don't think uh, you know people people will just stop caring uh, you know how indira gandhi essentially disintermediated the whole parliament and went direct to the masses this is essentially what the current government has done and not saying that it's bad but the outcome has been really bad uh, you very well you know disintermediate you go to the masses directly but that should definitely lead to some positive changes on the ground and i don't think that's happened at all and this government was given i think many chances good two and a half three three and a half years where i think it didn't get criticism at all every move was being viewed through a positive prism you know modi being modi visiting whatever 50 55 60 countries in his first two years that was supposed to be a positive he was filling out crowds in london in new york but i think after three years people just saw past that when they didn't have answers to any of the hard questions and the pivot just became pakistan after a while i think uri and then demonetization and then yogi adityanath happened and i think after that it was just uh, after that i think all pretensions that the bjp was holding up i think they just came crashing down and we all got to see the party for what it truly is yeah and, and sometimes i wonder are we discounting uh, just the amount of uh, public support there is uh, for, for modi because it is essentially modi right i mean i didn't hear of anyone out here who was voting who was talking about their mp i mean it's even in previous elections it's not like everyone would uh, you know talk about the prime minister candidate even though technically there isn't a prime minister candidate uh, but uh, at least there were some conversations about the mp about your constituency uh, which was completely lacking uh, this time around i mean no one was talking about it, it even uh, mps uh, fighting for uh, a certain seat were either fighting in the name of modi or i or fighting against modi so it was i th- i think this entire breakdown that has happened in the system of elections of campaigning of how politicians want us to see them uh, is what is so disconcerting because if every politician has to insert the name of the incumbent prime minister in their campaigning isn't that just like complete failure of what we built all these years i mean it was <laughs> all that was the only conversation yeah i think it's an abject uh, it's just an abject surrender there is no other word for it we had a parliamentary system so there could be you know hundreds and thousands of different ideas and you know we didn't even have an anti defection law for the longest time so party members could vote their conscience on issues where they felt they knew deeply they would defy the party whip now they can no longer even do that so what is the point of you knowing your local mp's name if all mp's are elected in the prime minister's name and all work is done under you know one of the million yojanas or scheme that the prime minister announces 
then what is the point of even knowing your local mp your mla your councillor i think there's just like i said i mean it's just disintermediation to another degree for good or bad it's just uh, there's no connection to power that people will have left anymore and another thing i wanted to discuss with you you know given where we are from uh, what do you think the future holds for the five southern states uh, you know karnataka has always been the only place where bjp would have a shot of forming the government they won't be in power for the next five years none of the other four southern states are going to return an ally a bjp ally or the or the bjp government and there've already been changes afoot in the finance commission probably the moratorium on the lok sabha seats redistribution that is uh, coming up for a question in the coming decade so where do you see uh, the south in the years ahead i just fear the south might be cut adrift uh, you know not having a voice at the center uh, not having uh an equitable distribution of the nation's uh, resources uh i slightly fear for uh, the south what do you, you think about that yeah it does look pretty hopeless i mean what happened in karnataka during the state elections uh was an indicator of uh, times to come right and i think uh, the fact that bjp has retreated uh, in their overall effort i mean there was a time when there was a lot of wooing going on in tamil nadu uh with with the parties out there there was um, there was an entire uh, break up that happened in uh, andhra pradesh uh so overall i think bjp uh after a point in time and after the uh, so called tragic loss uh, that they suffered in karnataka uh have taken a step back and i don't know if uh you know my fellow south indians uh feel that kind of fear i mean a lot of them actually came out said that hey listen uh, we pushed the bjp out right and i think this the scary part is that very few uh people in the south realize what that means um and uh, i think the bjp have just moved all their efforts into the hindi heartland uh that's where um all the money all the resources has moved during elections Uh, i think even in the upcoming uh, state elections in the next couple of years you will see all that focus going back into uh, reclaiming up because it looks like they are going to lose uh, you know some ground out there and potentially will lose more ground during the next state elections uh, and also ground that they lost in madhya pradesh i think those will become priorities for the uh, government in the center and obviously between modi and amit shah over the next couple of years their only focus will be to uh, regain these uh, states uh, which means uh, the southern states and especially for me uh, karnataka will continue to drift away because karnataka anyway doesn't have much of a uh, history of uh, great policy making uh, considering they've always been at odds with the uh, central and uh, you know state government always being different parties yeah. so it looks it looks pretty uh, bleak but i don't think everyone is realizing that yet and maybe that's something else uh we should start waking up to and maybe some of the local uh, parties and i know for a fact that uh, uh you know in in telangana uh i mean coming out of uh, telangana there was a strong voice and it was something i was hoping would get stronger as a third front but we know that <laughs> there is no room for a third front in this country at least for the next 
you know potentially the next decade so yeah bleak days ahead yeah so on that uh, very bleak note then do we want to <laughs> let our viewers go yeah for sure and uh, i i think uh, just a quick note uh, exit polls out today uh, the the market sold uh, crazily and there were a lot of people getting excited uh, should we be happy about that i mean it's just a relief rally more than anything and uh, also you know 2014 we had the same thing the markets reacted uh, very very positively to this government coming back in power but i i see no reason given their five year stewardship of the economy for the markets to get this excited i think what the markets are getting excited about is that there will not be a fractured mandate uh, and that's that's about it it's not really a, a verdict on the bjp's uh, five year performance because i think it's been quite poor but the stock market has taken no note of it i mean there really the global factors at play here as well uh, but i think a non fractured mandate is what the market is uh, cheering but i think for the next of the year rest of the year if uh, bjp does have an absolute majority again i think no doubt the markets uh, will continue to do quite well uh, till the true colors of uh, economic mismanagement come to the fore again right so in anticipation or a lack of it uh, we uh, we shall anyway reconvene on this uh, post election results and uh, until then we uh, all follow the news uh, as best yeah. as we can and yeah. all the more important that we continue to pontificate <laughs> on this yes yeah and on that note thank you all for tuning into our episode uh, are there any uh, last words for our listeners Yeah I think what I'm really excited to talk about next time is the Armed Forces uh, Special Operation Division which has been commissioned and uh, will be operational by the end of the year it's something I've extensively written about in fact the the single most viewed article I've ever had was the one on the special forces identity crisis where one of the suggestions was to set up a special operations command they've set up a division so very excited to dive into it with you that will be awesome i i really love that piece and accounted for quite a few of those views i'm sure <laughs> uh, but uh, um, and you know i'm i'm also quite kicked about uh, the whole discussion we've been having over the last couple of days uh, over just leadership uh, and i'm so happy that we can bring it into our next episode um through some of the uh, institutions and people uh, out there who we have admired and uh, also had uh, very feeble feelings about uh, at the same time uh, so i think that will be quite exciting too and uh, uh, i feel that uh, it's it's going to be fun recording and bringing it to our listeners yeah definitely so i think on that note we should uh... start preparing for our next episode and bring it out to the listeners as soon as possible yes absolutely signing off from uh, bangalore and catching catch you soon over there yeah see you soon <laughs>